I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. Hi, welcome to another Little Atoms. For tonight's show, I'm cross-posting the last in the series of the Little Atoms Road Trip podcasts. This is an interview recorded in Ithaca in upstate New York at the home of Andrew Yan, who as co-author with Carl Sagan of The Demon Haunted World, is basically responsible for me getting into science and scepticism in the first place, which led to the formation of Little Atoms and eventually that road trip. Andrew Yan is an author and television and film writer and producer whose work is largely concerned with the effects of science and technology on our civilization. She was co-writer with Carl Sagan and Stephen Soter of the Emmy and Peabody award-winning television series Cosmos and as the founder and CEO of Cosmos Studios, she is currently working on a reboot of that series. Andrew Yan served as creative director of the NASA Voyager Interstellar Record Project she is the author or co-author of several books, including Comet, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for two months. Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, written with Carl Sagan, was another New York Times bestseller. She is also a credited contributor to the best-selling books Contact, Pale Blue Dot, The Demon Haunted World and Billions of Billions by Carl Sagan. She was the co-producer and co-creator of Contact, a Warner Brothers motion picture based on the story she wrote with Carl Sagan, directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring Jodie Foster. Andrew Yan was married for nearly two decades to Carl Sagan until his death in December 1996, and subsequently she was the founder of the Carl Sagan Foundation. OK, so I'm here in Ithaca, in upstate New York, which is the home of Cornell University, and it's also the home of Andrew Yan, who I'm sat with. And thank you very much for talking to Little Atoms today. I'm glad to be talking with you, Neil. I've been on this epic voyage across America a couple of weeks ago, I was at JPL and I spent a fantastic hour with Ed Stone talking about, just reminiscing about all of the the old missions he'd been involved in and it was such an honour to talk to him and we ended up talking about Voyager, of course, and of all the historic space missions, but the man, the run Voyager, I think is my favourite. There's something about the fact that it's literally any day now is about to leave our solar system. Makes it to me the most romantic of all the space missions and actually, of course, for you, there's an even deeper resonance than that, isn't there? So let's talk about your involvement with the Voyager mission. Well, 
my involvement with the Voyager mission is really the central event of my life in some ways because it was in the course of directing the project to create an interstellar message that would be affixed to each of the Voyager spacecraft that would contain a record of what it was like to be alive on Earth. And in a way, to me, this is probably the most ambitious conceptual art piece ever Mm -hmm. mounted in human history, precisely because these two voyagers would leave the Earth, as they did in August and September of 1977, and affixed to each of them were these golden records containing 18 pieces of world music, images, 118 pictures of images of what it's like to be alive on Earth, what life on Earth looks like, a recorded sound essay of the geological and biological and technological sounds of Earth using the recorder as a kind of camera for the ear to record the history of the whole planet. And besides that, greetings in some 59 human languages and one whale language to the beings of other times and other worlds. The voyagers travel roughly, as the great Ed Stone may have mentioned, something like 40,000 miles an hour. And they've been traveling for 35 years. And they have a projected future life of perhaps a thousand million years. Billion years with a B into the future, traveling through the galaxy. And of course, Carl Sagan was one of the minds behind this whole impulse to affix not just a kind of license plate on the Voyagers saying where we were and who we were, but actually something much more ambitious, Mm -hmm. a golden record with the essence of the part about us that you can't convey through the machines. I mean, I, I imagine, you know, distant extraterrestrials uh, flag down this derelict craft and immediately, you know, they say, oh, that's a class F civilization at such a degree of development. And they'll know a lot about us from the machine. Mm-hmm. But beyond what the machine can tell them, there are these two golden records encased in, uh, in a cover which is engraved with scientific hieroglyphics, giving them something about our address in the galaxy, about some of the, you know, pathetic little knowledge of science that we have yet, we have so far attained. And it was during the course of the making of this record, during the late winter and early spring of 1977, Mm -hmm. that Carl Sagan and I announced to each other our true feelings after knowing each other socially and platonically for three years. Mm -hmm. And it was because I was able to find a piece of Chinese music for the record. Now, of course, what did we know about Chinese music? I mean, we were, we knew there was a, some knowledge depth of, about certain forms of, of music, Western music. We certainly consulted composers and various people, and then we also had our own passion for music and uh, some knowledge of it. But what do we know of Chinese music? It's one of the oldest musical traditions in the world. It's continuous for something like 3,000 years. And here we were, uh, a bunch of people who thought of ourselves as being extremely sophisticated and very cultured, 
who knew absolutely nothing about Chinese music, if we had to name a single piece of Chinese music, shake us up, upside <laughs> down, and nothing would come out. So in my searching and talking to experts on the subject, Chinese musicians and composers and musicologists, I finally found a piece called Flowing Streams, which was perfect for our Voyager record. It was some 2,500 years old. It was being played by a man who was essentially the equivalent of, let's say, Vladimir Horowitz on the stringed instrument called the chin. And Flowing Streams was about our relationship to the universe. And the man whose performance this recording was of was 95 years old when he was playing this piece, and he was murdered shortly after in the Cultural Revolution. So here was a six-fur, not a three-fur or two-fur, but a six-fur in so many different ways. And so I was very excited, and I called Carl Sagan, whom I had worked with. He was uh, someone I knew socially, and he was, of course, married to someone else who I also was very close to. I was involved with another person who he was very close to. It was fraught with all kinds of danger for everyone. And we were, you know, we had never once looked at each other, even though we'd been alone countless times, and betrayed any any of those feelings to each other. And in the course of finding this music, I was so excited, I called Carl in Tucson, Arizona, where he was giving a talk. And he wasn't there, I left a message, and went back to work in my little apartment on West 74th Street in Central Park. And uh, phone rang, and hear this magnificent voice say, come back to my hotel room, find this message. Said Annie called and uh, say to myself, why didn't you leave me this message 10 years ago? And that was the beginning of 20 years of such intense joy, discovery, hard work, love, happiness, children. And so two days after this epical event, which had the quality for me personally of discovering a scientific truth, eureka moment, I was hooked up to an EEG, an electroencephalogram machine, at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And I was, you know, there were cathodes and, you know, diodes or whatever were hooked up to every part of me, conveying and recording every single neurological impulse and thought and heartbeat and rapid eye movement. And I was locked in this little glass room, blindfolded, completely sensory deprived, while it seemed like a score of technicians were working at a computer, which in 1977 was the size of a house. <laughs> and, of course, probably had the computing power of my phone. Yeah. Probably less. <laughs> and they were converting all of these neurological impulses into data. And I was on an hour-long meditation, had a very clear itinerary. And, of course, this was two days after Carl and I had spoken on the phone. We hadn't yet kissed or anything like that, but we had vowed to spend the rest of our lives together. So I must have been so utterly suffused Mm -hmm. with every kind of ecstatic pheromone possible, because that's certainly how I felt. And I did this mental, this meditation about the history of the planet, to the best of my limited abilities, what I knew, what I could remember, telling the story of our species, of 
Our current predicament, 1977, nuclear arms race, 60,000 nuclear weapons uh, between what was in the Soviet Union and the United States. You know, a world fraught with peril. And yet, I was also able to spend quite some time thinking about the meaning of love, the love that we feel and I felt and still feel for my parents and my family, the love adults feel for each other, the love we feel for children. And part of that, of course, was this kind of mad, manic joy of this spring of a love that was constant spring. And so um, this was all put on the Voyager record. It's one of the final sounds in the sound essay that I directed. And it is, uh, sounds, it's kind of rasping thunder. Sounds very much like the recording of what was then the most distant object Mm -hmm. ever recorded by humans, which was a pulsar. And the difference between my crazy love thoughts and that pulsar, you know, I looked at Carl later and I said to him, do you think there's any chance that extraterrestrials will be able to reconstruct, to decipher, reconstitute these thoughts that I had and know the meaning of what I was feeling and thinking? And I remember him looking down at me on this beautiful June day and saying, hey, a billion years is a long time, Annie. You know, who knows? It's possible. So if that's the case, the Voyager record holds not only Chuck Berry doing Johnny Be Good and Louis Armstrong and Mozart and Bach and Beethoven and Japanese shakuhachi music and Japanese gamelan and Peruvian panpipes and uh, Senegalese percussion and an Indian vocal raga, which will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, as well as a Bulgarian shepherdess who has the greatest pipes this side of Aretha Franklin. Besides all that, on the Voyager record, there's a mother's very first words to her newborn baby, a kiss, and the heart sounds and brain sounds of a woman fallen insanely and truly in love. That's such a, an amazing, powerful story that inevitably we've just thrown off so many amazing and interesting facts during it. So let's go back to that Chinese piece of music, 2,300 years old. 2,500, I think. Yeah, 2,500 years old. That in itself is it's amazing. Was that the oldest piece that was on it? Well, what happened was when we found this one, when we listened, you know, the revelation, first of all, of listening to it was realising that for someone as ignorant as I am, hearing this piece and realizing that, you know, this made me feel the way that Eric Clapton or Blind Willie Johnson, who's also on the record, made me feel. And so, I mean, everyone loved it for every different reason. The historicity, the performance, the feeling of it. And it's, you know, there's a lot of the pieces, I think of it as one of the nocturnes Mm -hmm. on a record that is making a billion-year journey through mm-hmm. night. And so it has, it's, you know, it's part of that final wind-up of the record, which is most dramatic, of just, these are the most profound sounds that we know of. Now, obviously, if someone had infinite knowledge of the music of the world, there might be a different Voyager record. We had not just six months to create the record and we were on a shoestring Mm -hmm. in fact the entire Voyager record project all of the efforts my efforts Tim Ferriss and uh, 
John Lomberg and a number of other people, Linda Salzman, Sagan, all of their efforts, it all, we brought it all in for less than $18,000. Mm-hmm. And that's because we were completely, we were doing this as a labor of love and because we felt like we were standing at the gateway to Noah's Ark and we were bringing these pieces of music and these pieces of ourselves onto this ark, this cultural ark, which really had a shot at surviving our worst madness. Mm -hmm. And whenever we did here to this planet, nuclear war or climate change or any of the messed up things that we do, the voyagers would still be moving and they'd still have that life that we once made. You sort of talk about the the political climate in which this was taking place, and this is an incredibly idealistic idea. It's not something that had really been done on all the other. I mean, I know obviously Voyager is going where it's going, but how did the idea even get off the ground? How did it even come about that this would be a good thing to do? Carl Sagan and Frank Drake and Linda Saltzman Sagan, who was Carl's previous wife, created a plaque for the Pioneer spacecraft to other very well-traveled spacecraft, although not as far away from us as the Voyagers are even now, uh, that had been launched years earlier. And so the, the idea, listen, they're going anyway. Carl and Frank always had that kind of big picture of their two men with, Frank we're lucky to still have with us, two men with just, um, you know, not that wall between science and culture, mm-hmm. but two men who always lived in both worlds and who were thinking always uh, scientifically, but also with a kind of all-embracing understanding of the importance uh, that we are really, science is culture, and that there shouldn't be a division between mm-hmm. the two. And, and that's why you know everything Carl touched was like that. He never saw, he was tearing down those walls, and just as he didn't want walls around science that prevented the rest of us from being uplifted by the revelations and discoveries of science, he thought that if we were putting our best foot forward, we had to make a cultural statement as well. And it was, uh, I, I don't, at this moment, I can't say if it was Carl or Frank or John Cassani of NASA who tumbled to the idea of putting something on the spacecraft. It may have been NASA saying, well, that Pioneer plaque really got a lot of play and mm-hmm. it got a lot of attention and public relations. But it was Carl and Frank who were thinking in in the largest possible way of how to do it. And a phonograph record was the most economical way to encode the greatest amount of information Mm -hmm. at that time. And I'm extremely gratified by the fact that audiophiles of today really feel that the analog sound Mm -hmm. of the phonograph record is still preferable to the digital sound, which has a kind of hollowness to it. So even though when you think of the achievement of the Voyager mission, not only, you know, forget the record for a moment, in terms of this first reconnaissance of the outer solar system, first close-up look of a hundred worlds, the moons that we've never even, you know, discovered by Voyager, some of them, and certainly explored for the first time by Voyager. So this is Columbus, Magellan, everybody wrapped up into one on this wonderful mission. And then the idea that even though it's projected life as a spacecraft communicating back to us was to be, you know, sometime into the late 80s, early 90s, that was going to be it. Mm-hmm. 
And now the Voyagers have told us where the heliopause is, the shape of the solar system, and they are continuing to function beyond the wildest dreams of the engineers who designed it, beyond their specs by many orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And they are going to be in communication with us for perhaps another 10 years. So I like to think that if the engineers thought that their brilliant work would only see the voyagers through to the 90s, and here we are in 2012 talking about perhaps another 10 years of contact with them, that perhaps even their projection for the shelf life of the record itself Mm -hmm. may be on the conservative side. What I find so profound and romantic about that mission, and this this is a crazy thought, they're hunks of metal, but I can't help anthropomorphizing them and feeling somehow sad, like they're lonely. Those things are out there so far away, on their own, in that vastness. It's just I understand. Bit... I understand your feelings, but I have a different feeling, which is very often above, in my bedroom, the opposite wall to my bed, is one of the very rare golden record covers that were produced at that time. One was given to Frank, one mm. to Carl, and... To, to NASA, and then two on the spacecraft itself. So I feel very, it's almost, just, it's a sacred object in both in, in our family's view, my children, the idea that all of this comes out of that. But I go to sleep looking at them at night, looking at this one record cover at night, this golden cover with its scientific symbols. And I think to myself, I am not afraid to die mm-hmm. because I know I make myself imagine I'm moving with them through the galaxy, leaving the solar system, making for the open sea of interstellar space. And I just feel like, well, no matter what happens to me, my greatest happiness and the feelings that made my life most worthwhile, they live. That's a, that's a thought that leaves me almost speechless. It's so, it's so incredible thought. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, 
want to spend some time later in the interview talking about, specifically talking about the reboot of Cosmos, the new, oh, the new series. Yeah. But let's spend a while talking about the original Cosmos. This is you know, a series that has been just a profound influence on so many people, on myself particularly, but you know, I, almost everybody I've talked to on this journey across America, be they involved in, be they astronomers or exobiologists or people that are involved in space in any way, have cited Cosmos as an influence in why they're doing what they're doing. What must that be like, you know, that oh, legacy? You know, it's that... so great. It makes me so happy. And I feel like it's growing. You know, here's a, a series that debuts in 1980 and has this vibrant life online in every conceivable delivery system, media delivery system. And I think, you know, my there's a steady drumbeat of input to me, which is so exalting and uplifting. And I just wish I could tell Carl. I think he understood what he was about and what he was doing. Writing that series with him and with Steven Soder, astronomer and scholar, uh, archaeologist, three of us had three years of constant work on cosmos and i look back on it and it informs how i'm experiencing the Mm -hmm. writing and producing of the new series because it's just that it's so easy in the constant hectic pace to get irritated and think you know god i wish this was done and i wish we get through this but it's just so foolish because you know all the way to heaven is heaven and that's what cosmos was the experience of writing it with Carl and Steve, being you know in some 40 locations around the world, uh, this new cosmos that we're producing with Seth MacFarlane is being done in a much more disciplined way. In fact, Steve and I today are putting the finishing touches on the script for episode 12. And in this beautiful, another June, uh, which is so beautiful in this part of the world, we are getting ready to write what is we hope will be the symphonic 13th episode Mm -hmm. as we tried to do in the original series we call it climbing mount cosmos is what it feels (laughs) like because you know the opportunity to be on fox which is a network in the united states that you can get without having cable without having to pay that extra money for cable so it's truly uh the kind of outreach that we feel most passionately about that Carl was a total pathfinder in. You know, it was his ethos was that all of this belongs to everyone. And it's, if you make it too complicated for absolutely everyone from a small child to someone like my dad, who's 95 and very sharp, if you make it too hard for anybody, either of those, or anyone in between to understand, then it's your failure. And so what we're trying to do is to present that marriage of history, science, drama. We want to make it, as we hope Cosmos, the original series was, a kind of feast for the brain, for the heart, for the eye, for the ear. If it doesn't work on all those four levels, it's not Cosmos. Mm -hmm. And in working uh, these last several years with Steve Soder and with Seth and Mitchell Cannell and Neil Tyson, who will be our host, it's you know, I find myself frequently saying, that's cosmos. No, no, that's not cosmos. <laughs> and I think it's a very, it's an untenanted ecological niche, cosmos. Mm-hmm. 
because it's not guys with pocket protectors and short sleeve shirts talking about the latest thinking about this or that scientific question. It's a kind of shamanistic experience, which you, you know, we probably first had around a fire somewhere, perhaps a couple of hundred thousand years ago. And so that's what Cosmos is, and, and that's what we're trying to do now. Well, I want to stop you there, because this is exactly what, what I wanted to talk about. Let's go back to the, the seeds of that first Please. Cosmos series. And first of all, this was something that was a huge, lavishly produced series, 13-part series about science, which right. we forget at that time wasn't really, a, wasn't really the, the done thing, I guess. But at the same time... I'm sorry, may I disagree with you about this one thing? And that is that I think at that time, it was more the done thing than it is now. Oh, really? Now? Okay, that's interesting. Uh, Because, you know, we had public television in its Mm -hmm. most vigorous phase, very well funded, and uh, I don't think that the atmospheric cultural war science was what it is now here Mm -hmm. in the United States. I mean... You know, back then, I think in many ways, we were more advanced about science, not about many social questions. We've made huge progress, and I wouldn't go back there for anything. <laughs> but i just like to say that we f- feel that the audience that we are presenting this to today will find a lot of this kind of more like news, you know, mm-hmm. than they did back then. Yeah, I think sure. there weren't the pressures on American public education not to go deeply mm-hmm. into evolution. And things were taken for granted that these were, you know, that we had arrived at a point where we understood that science was a way of interrogating nature and actually getting at the truth rather than it was on some kind of equal footing in that regard with other ideologies. So was it in some ways easier to get off the ground back then than it has been now? Yes, much easier. It was much easier. In fact, this series, current one that we're doing now, took six solid years of... uh, I was working with... am working with a producer named Mitchell Cannell, and Mitchell and I have been working for six years to get this off the ground, and we went to all the usual suspects to do this, and there was only two problems everywhere we went. It was, one, they wanted creative control, which I would not see because, in my view, I am the keeper of the flame. Mm -hmm. You know, there are many keepers, but I feel the responsibility of keeping the flame to protect Carl's legacy, our legacy, and what Carl's life's work. And so, of course, I couldn't see creative control to a third party under any circumstance. The other thing was that they wanted to do it, but they wanted to do it for the same price as they do all their shows. So the possibility of having a kind of transporting experience equivalent to what Cosmos was able to achieve at its time Mm -hmm. wasn't possible. I mean, we were the very first to use what was then called a blue screen, but now green screen Mm -hmm. technology. There were, you know, we did things that hadn't been done before on television back then. And even though, you know, you can, there are many aspects which are dated to this mm-hmm. day, I'm very proud of what we were able to achieve in, you know, what was essentially late 70s. Well, there are aspects of it that all of this time later are a little dated, but some right. of them, you know, the, the recreation of the Library of Alexandria looked like it was done yesterday. You know, they're um, that, well, that was well the done. first use of magic cam, of the mm-hmm. idea of a camera slave. I'm very proud of that. That was sort of mine. Uh, was um, Magicam was 
a camera was slaved to a computer. Mm -hmm. And no one had, had done that before, so that you could actually, Carl could cast a shadow as he walked in what was a completely blue room, and you thought he was walking in a model, which was the size mm -hmm. of a ping pong table. And so that was, you know, really big stuff back then. But we wanted to be commensurately adventurous and technically surprising with our new series. And it wasn't until Seth MacFarlane came into the picture and used every bit of cred that he had with Fox to say this should really be on our air. And we, he took us to Peter Rice, and Peter hadn't seen the series. He's British. And he agreed to watch it. And weeks, months went by. And we had been disappointed so many times before that we were prepared to be disappointed again. But you know, the whole idea was not to give up. And he called us back to L.A., which was very encouraging. He probably wouldn't have done that if he wanted to say no. And he said, I think about his kids all the time because he said, well, in the beginning I said to my kids, we're going to watch this 30-year-old show. Uh, and they were like, no, no. <laughs> and he said, you know, after the uneasy chuckling at the turtlenecks and the hair and the sideburns and whatever, it was every time I came over from work, Dad, when are we going to watch Cosmos? We want to watch Cosmos. And so that's really how we got to all of our wishes came true so that we could do Cosmos on Fox. What you earlier described as that Cosmos feeling, as you described it as almost a, a, a shamanistic thing, was that conception always there from the beginning? Was that always built into it? Or were we just sort of looking back on that with retrospect and seeing what it has become? Well, you know, part of that was Carl's own personality and his own approach, which is evident, actually, if you look at what he was writing in his earliest notebooks. It's such an amalgam of those elements that you could say, and I, I'm sure that there would have been a cosmos. As long as Carl had the chance to do it, there would have been a cosmos. It would have been different, but mm -hmm. it would have been wonderful. But then what happened was the three of us started working together, and there were things that each of us brought. There was a wonderful tension, affection, hysterical laughter that I can still, it echoes, reverberates through my head all the time. And um, just a kind of a joy of discovery because we were all learning by doing. We had never done anything like this before. It was like really jumping into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and saying, okay, let's make a 13-part television series. We had the guidance and the great talent of Adrian Malone, who was the executive producer. And I think his role in this was very great. But we were, Carl and Steve and I wrote it, and it was all, it was out of our collective head. And what we did was we just followed our bliss. We, you know, Carl always used to say, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So we made sure that Cosmos was entirely composed of those things that really interested us. And, and I wasn't a good science student or a good math student. And I had lots of science and math trauma. And so I felt like an ombudsman for all of the rest of the audience that, um, that had been effectively excluded from science and made to feel left out. But Carl's genius as a science educator was developed before Cosmos, and I feel like it was just very lucky that the three of us got to do it together. 
To what extent then do you think that feeling throughout the programme is, is central to its appeal, even now? I think it was part of it was because Carl and I were you know, in this kind of mad love. And for us, every minute together, you know, the dedication of the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which I, is probably something I cherish. Of, of all, I can't even begin to say how much it means to me. This notion that we had found each other and the immensity and the vastness of space and the immensity of time, and we were sharing this moment on Earth together. As has often been said, neither of us believed or believes in an afterlife. And so we really had a sense of like every single moment together was this gift. And we used to say to each other constantly, God, I can't believe we get to stay up as late as we want. You know, we can go, we can do anything we want because it felt like that sort of ecstatic feeling you have as a child, like when you have your first friend stay over, you know, and it's just like you can stay up late and you can do this freedom, joy. And so I think that that's very, it's very much a part of cosmos. And I think it's through, you know, it's organically woven into every moment. I was, I think without exception, I was standing next to the camera every single time Carl was talking into the camera. Every word was scripted, which is something that I think people find very surprising. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, uh, it, you know, Carl's delivery was so natural that it felt like something extemporaneous that he was just saying. But no, there were these big cue cards, and we argued and struggled and really thought and pulled together the three of us over every single word Mm -hmm. and if you look at various iterations of the scripts of which there are probably 25 iterations of every script you'll see this kind of constant changing of word for word you know until we got to the point where the three of us were happy and we had a a kind of rule which lasted with Carl for the rest of his life and which Steve and I also employ, which is, you know, the best argument wins the day, but uh, everyone's entitled to one or two peremptory challenges, which <laughs> are just, you know, I'm sorry, I, this is really important to me. I want it to be this way. And finally, okay, okay. But that's how it got written. And um, it's, you know, it's just... And that's how we're doing this one, and right in this house, mostly. And we started last June. So if we finish episode 13 by the end of this month, which I think we have a very good shot at, we will have written 13 hours in one year, which is more or less. Yeah, and without Carl. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Steve and I have said to each other countless times, this is hard, and God, if only Carl were here, you know. This is like, really, it's like trying to do all kinds of things missing a big part of herself. Carl was already a, you know, an incredibly eminent scientist mm. and, and to some degree well known as a, as, as a popularizer of science as well, but Cosmos made him into a, a, a global superstar. Right. How did that go? What was that like? How did oh, he handle it was that? Heaven. <laughs> he loved it. I loved it. Because, you know, you could be in Madras or, you know, the most, you could be anywhere on earth and people would come up to Carl, and neither of us ever tired of this, and it would be, thank you for showing me the universe. Because of you, I teach science. Because of you, I am a scientist. Because of you, I went back to school. Because of you, I read books. Because of you, what could make anyone happier than that? I mean, it wasn't like 
hey, you're much taller in person, you know, or the usual things that people say when hoping for autographs. Most people weren't even hoping for autographs. They just wanted to convey this kind of sense of appreciation. You know, I always thought I was too stupid to understand science, which I could relate to completely, people would say, you know, or I did. You made me feel like I was smart enough to do this or do that. Carl was never impatient with the people who came up to him. And in fact, after his death, I was regaled with stories of people who said, you know, I was in an elevator in Dallas and he was there and he got off at my floor to continue the conversation and it was so wonderful. And yeah, I mean, he was, you know, it's very corny, but it's so true. He was had that kind of generosity of soul that made him, you know, he was obviously super smart and I read a book a night but what I think about when I think about him is his ability to be happy, his ability to be kind and to embrace life and to be alive. I think he was the most fully realized person I've ever met in my life. Considering the continuing popularity of, of the original Cosmos, all of those unique elements that went into the making, and of course, Carl himself being like incredibly central to it, why remake it? Well, we're not remaking it. These are all new stories. There is not a moment of Cosmos that's being remade. We wouldn't dare. And that would be cruel to Neil. That wouldn't be fair. No, we are not remaking it. We are, in fact, it's just time to get going again, to mm-hmm. hit the road. You know, and so that's the incentive behind it. The impulse behind it is that there are there are dramatic heroic stories in the history of science that have never been told. There are people who have affected our lives, every one of us, in ways that are profound, of whom we are completely ignorant. We know nothing about them. We know nothing about their struggles. And really, what do they embody? They embody a kind of heroism which never involves taking another life, which never involves doing anything that leads to some kind of dominance, position in a dominance hierarchy. It's about knowing nature more deeply and understanding it more deeply, and not one of them gets all the credit. They're all just putting another brick on this wall, this edifice of our understanding of nature. So it's so moving. I mean, we have... You know, science has demoted us, as Carl memorably said, and is uh, from the center of the universe. We're not the crown of creation. We're not any of those things that religion has been trying to give us. And to me, that's a sign of a lack of self-esteem, that we're looking for these false distinctions that make us special. When the thing that really, if anything makes us special, it's that we are courageous in our ability to accept how tiny we are in the context of the real cosmos and how young and ignorant we are. And that's the ethos of science. That's why, to me, philosophically, it is the most satisfying way of loving life and the universe is the knowledge that it's just that, you know, I don't have to be that big or any of those things that we feel that we need. And uh, science is saying, okay, you say you love nature, you love God, you love creation, 
Okay, well, it's testing us every minute. Because if you really love it, you're going to... Humility is really seeing your true place. Not telling yourself that you're so someone's favorite, which is, you know, the other direction. So, yeah, no, it's... I don't know how we got on this particular part of it, but yes, I mean, I... That's why it's easy to have spent the last 30 years doing these kinds mm-hmm. of things. Because for me, it's from my heart. I really feel it with all my being that the more we know about everything, about each other, and about who we are and our world and the universe, the better shot we have of sticking around. I was talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson a few days ago. We talked briefly about the, the new series because I know I was I would spend most of the time talking to you about it. And Neil is, I think, incredible. I'm a, I, I have Carl Sagan's voice in my head all the time. It's me too. On me. <laughs> and there's, I'm sure, you, well, you've been on it, but the, the podcast Radio Lab, which I think is the, one of the most wonderful things there is, whenever I think of that, I have Neil deGrasse Tyson's voice in my head saying, we're a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck. So I know, I know that he is going to be fantastic at this. But even so, these are big boots to fill. Like, right. What's that going to be like? How do you sort of anticipate that? Well, I chose him because... I knew he could do it, mm-hmm. and because of the relationship between him and Carl, which was a true friendship, and because I was thinking, you know, what would Carl, mm-hmm. who would Carl choose? And I was looking around, and there are many telegenic uh, scientists who are also great communicators, more than ever, mm-hmm. if that's what I think you were alluding to earlier. Sure, absolutely, yeah. There are more than, I can think of a dozen who would be good, but for this particular outing it was Neil Mm -hmm. because I see in him that passion to communicate and I feel that he just has the chops to do it and this is a you know it's not just a cerebral journey it's also an emotional journey if we succeed and it seemed to me that Neil just you know really had what it takes I know him very well we've worked together on other projects I've actually known him through Carl since he was a very, very young man Mm -hmm. and watched him become who he is now. And he has not only the scientific knowledge, the gift of language, so that the stuff we're writing really feels that Neil could be saying it if you understand what I mean. I mean, he has that ability to use his voice to convey the feelings that are very much a part of this, as well as the rigorous, skeptical, mm-hmm. uncompromising science. He and Steve are also very close. And so the three of us have worked together, have known each other a very long time, and it just seemed the organic choice to uh, take the ship out on the next journey. Before we finish off talking about the first series of Cosmos, then, one of the one of the other most powerful things about it, I think, is that there are whole sections in it about nuclear winter, nuclear war. It sort of foreshadows the idea of climate change and environmentalism. Oh, absolutely. Was that always deliberate? Was that always a conception that was there from the yes. beginning? Oh, yeah. Because all of us, all three of us, in one way or another, although Carl was a little bit older, came up in the, through the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so we... We were raised by people who gave us a very, uh, who'd been through the depression and all the political and social upheaval of that time. And so we all had, we're uh, public school kids, which means something different where you live, I know, but 
you know, we were, you know, we didn't go to private schools, we didn't have that. We had that kind of very small d democratic view of life. And, you know, the idea of all scientific knowledge, if it wasn't put into the service of all the life forms on this planet in one way or another, was empty kind of academic thing that has certainly had no appeal to me. We were looking for a kind of North Star and to be able to make sense of the journey, to be able to understand. Carl always felt very strongly that you couldn't aspire to have even the little bit of democracy that we enjoy in a society that was totally dependent on science and high technology, mm-hmm. in which most of us didn't know anything about And so I think that part of his science communication was when you're in love, you want to tell the world, you know, this is cool, you'll love this, this is great. But then there was another part of it, which was an informed public might make some really good decisions and might actually awaken itself from the kind of stupor that we have been in for a very long time about climate change. And... I think what happened with the nuclear arms race was a kind of exciting existence theorem demonstrating what the best that we're capable of. And so Cosmos was always going to have this very strong social content, which would be about, you know, the founders of science, Mm -hmm. the Ionians. Uh, These were my guys. This was always my passion. They were not like Plato, you know, sitting around and just thinking and having contempt for people who did the work. They were middle class, and they were merchants, Mm -hmm. and they actually did work, and they knew stuff based on the work they did, and you get the experimental method straight out of that. You wouldn't get that from the aristocratic do-nothings who never got their hands dirty. So Cosmos was not only about how the origins of science came from a kind of fledgling sense of democracy, of kind of meritocracy in the sense that you could come from anywhere, but if you, and what you had to say was sound and represented some kind of step forward in what we under, how we understood nature, then you get the floor. And so, yes, it was always that. The values of science and democracy and the idea that we lived on a planet and still do, where a fifth of us living on something like $2 a day, and there may be another fifth of us are living on an astonishing scale, far beyond anyone's conceivable requirements. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle. And just notions of how we distribute and how we use our resources and what resources we choose to develop, that is part of it. And how could a show about how we found out our coordinates in space and time, and who we are, and how nature works. How could that ever be divorced from the greater social truth of the world? This worldview, a liberal, egalitarian idea, is obviously central to your worldview, and it was to Carl's worldview. And we've talked about how the nuclear arms race and climate change things featured in the first series of Cosmos. And there are smaller ways where that worldview does. And my, you know, my favourite example, I think, possibly is is the fact that you guys basically made a sort of modern hero out of Hypatia and, and, and sort of yes. her, her part in the, um, in the scientific canon and her, and her story. 
Are you going to do the same thing with the next series? To what extent yes. are you going to be able to talk about this, yes. this stuff I, in the well, I don't series? know extent at all because you know we want everybody to be excited about it and to be fresh as possible when it airs. Mm. But yes, but we are telling different stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do have some, you know, we think some of the stories are similar to the Hypatia story. You know, which was in re- direct response to, actually, I was reading Gibbon. And it was Gibbon's passage on Hypatia, which started the whole Library of Alexandria mm-hmm. and the whole... I had actually put the Library of Alexandria in my first novel years before. So I had already been thinking about it. But Hypatia was just like reading in bed at night, reading Gibbon, turned to Carl and say, did you ever hear of Hypatia? I've never heard of this woman. What did you know about this? And it was at a moment when the world was saying, well, if women are as smart as men, you know, where are the female Leonardo's and where are the female Einsteins? And I was ecstatic because this was a great story of what happens, if you dare, as a woman in that time, in the 4th century AD, if you stepped out of the narrow prescribed pathway that women were allowed, what would happen to you? Well, you'd be carved to bits with abalone shells. You know, it's no fun. You know, it's like a big warning. Uh, don't do this. And so, yeah, so that worked very well. And in fact, that was actually the real basis of Eleanor Arroway in contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, as is often said, based on any a particular woman scientist who actually lives, although I can think of no one who embodies those great qualities better than Jill Charter, but in fact it had nothing to do with her at all. It was an answer to that question, where are those female Leonardos? I was sort of getting to ask you the question, but I think really, I mean, I, I sort of already know the answer, I guess. I wanted to talk with you know, your particular take on the world and, and these ideals, whether or not you, you had any qualms taking this new series to Fox. But I mean, I guess the fact that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be getting stuff Right. Like well, this have, on Fox is, is, is answer enough. I have two answers to that question. One is The Simpsons and mm-hmm. Family Guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there are better influences on American life on television, I'd like to know what they are. And so, uh, you know, that's one part of it. The other part of it was when Carl was alive, he and I used to write for a Sunday supplement called Parade Magazine, mm-hmm. which it was you know, usually like interviews with celebrities and stuff like that, but no scientific content until we started writing for them. And they got, at the time, they had a circulation of 70 million people. And I think a lot of the hostility that Carl encountered from, you know, the National Academy and places like that was a sense of like, how can you be a truly great scientist if you write for something like Parade Magazine? You know, the PBS series was bad enough, but at least it was PBS. But our feeling, his feeling, and mine was, who do we want to reach? Do we want to reach the people who we already know have had a decent science education or are already aware of these phenomena? And, or do we want to reach people who, as Carl was and as I was, were when we were kids growing up in Queens and Brooklyn and didn't have any exposure to this kind of thing? And so Carl was such a good explainer because he could remember exactly what that was like. And I was in the same boat because I was such a bad science student. So I completely related to the idea that I want to talk to the people 
who may not have encountered this before. Because that's why you get the experience that we had, as you alluded to earlier, which is to be in Union Station and have the guy, the red cap, who's carrying the luggage, you know. Carl takes the money out to tip the guy, goes, Dr. Sagan. And it's the first moment that we realized he knew who Carl was. Dr. Sagan, put your money away. You gave me the universe. And so this little thing I can do for you, that's, that's the dream of cosmos. And that was Carl's dream, a world where nobody is poor, where nobody is hungry, and where everybody has some sense of the real grandeur of the universe and the greatness of nature. And maybe if we had that and it was as widespread as we would like it to be, we'd be much more careful about how we treat each other and this beautiful planet. I want to finish off then just talking about what that appetite for, well, I guess for science, really, is in the US. Because actually, although what we've been talking about this afternoon, you've you've written quite critically of a sort of prevailing attitude of anti-science in America. So is, are both of those things there? Yes, both of those things are there. And I think it's gotten much worse in, in recent times, here anyway. I can't speak to how it is in other countries. I think one of the reasons is no Carl, you know? Because even though I have such admiration for the scientists who are on the scene and who are communicating and doing great science, I do have that great admiration for them. But Carl was always willing to put everything on the line for what he believed. You know, he never flinched from that. Whether it was being a young graduate student and deciding to go to all-black colleges in Alabama and Mississippi to teach about the search for intelligent life on Earth, as he did in 1962, long before the American white middle class had awakened to the need to change the country. I mean, Carl, you know, arrested three times at the Nevada nuclear test site, willing to speak truth to power, turning down invitations to dine at the White House from Reagan's and because of a feeling of not wanting to be socially co-opted and forced into being polite and nice, but really wanted to stand up. I mean, he was really, you know, honest about his use of marijuana at a time when marijuana smokers were horribly persecuted, unreasonably persecuted, and of course they still are. He was real, and he kept it real. And so... I mean, that's the greatness of him. If we had a Carl Sagan now, who'd be, as Jim Hansen has been, Mm -hmm. so steadily and so magnificently, but with the kind of outreach that Carl had, beating that drum that uh, about global warming and saying attention must be paid, I think we would live in a different world. I think Carl would have taken on the religious fundamentalists at the height of their influence in this country and really made quite a stamp because when he died, it was like, yes, there are individuals who were trying to speak out and who do speak out and occasionally, but they weren't going to be on The Tonight Show week after week or on those other major media outlets which could really influence the people who hadn't made up their mind. This has been an interview full of 
joy and wonder and I don't really want to end it on a oh. on a down note but are you optimistic for the future then I mean do you think yes. do you think that you are oh, I'm not often right <laughs> but I am I am always optimistic and I am more optimistic at this time in my life having seen the great changes I mean I was born at a time yeah, I was born in 1949 and where maybe it was a post-war phenomena, but respect for women and their intelligence was at an all-time low. Apartheid in the United States was absolutely rampant. You know, when I think of the progress we've made in the last year with our homophobia, where we have really changed lots of minds. You know, there's been a tipping point where before the minority believed in equal rights for everyone. It's beginning to be the majority in this country which recognizes the importance of equal rights for everyone. That is a victory I wish I could tell Carl about. He was, in fact, the man who gave Frank Kameny, who was the first person in the history of the United States who ever sued the federal government because he was fired for being a homosexual from his federal job. Carl reached out to him and offered him a job at that time. And that was a long time ago. And so, I mean, I wish I could, you know, we are making great progress. And the thing I wish I could convey to Carl most would not be about our progress and what we've learned about the cosmos since he died in 1996, but really more about the development of the Internet since his death. And the fact that it is the means for a coalescing global community of people who are vigilant about the environment and about human rights. And this gives me a tremendous amount of hope because now nothing happens in a secret, which if you love the scientific method, you you know have to feel that secrecy is pernicious, lying is pernicious, and that our only hope for the future is to be in a world where evil, rotten, meanness, cruelty, violence doesn't happen in a place where no one can help and so or no one can hear it. That's that's a great thing. So I know I am very excited. I feel like the United States is, you know, it's a moment of decision and we will, you know, who knows what will happen in the next year. I, I certainly wouldn't predict that. But no matter what happens we came past, we broke a spell. We broke a several spells. And I really feel sure that we'll be able to break some more in the future. So I'm sitting talking to Andrew Yan. Now, I've been on this trip for the past month, meeting incredible people and going to amazing places. But basically, the entire reason I'm here is because of the work that you and Carl did. That's why that's why I'm sat in this room, that's why I'm in America doing this thing, it's why I do what I do. So wow. thank you so much for doing this interview because you know you've you've already given me the universe basically. Well you just given me some goosebumps really. And Neil, I hope this is only one of many times, many encounters where we can talk more. I'm Naomi Alderman. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, 
you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>